Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future Technologies, poised to transform our lives for better or worse, are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used, or just around the corner, from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast, Round the Corner, Almost Here Technology. Today I have Bailey Reitzel. Uh, we're going to be talking about blockchain and some fintech. Bailey, how are you doing? Yeah, doing really well. How are you? All right, all right. A little bit uh, mush-mouthed today, but uh, I'll try to get over that. <laughs> so um, <laughs> in the spirit of me being inarticulate, would you mind telling listeners uh, what it is you do? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm a journalist in the fintech space, and since probably early 2013. Um, my focus has been on Bitcoin and blockchain. Um, so, yeah, I've been in the space for quite a while, so I've seen it sort of evolve over time. And what publications do you write for? Is it just one, or do you uh, write for your own self and then syndicate to other publications? So I started out writing for Payment Source, which is a, a brand of American Banker, um, covering FinTech and Bitcoin there. Um, then I started my own thing, um, which was called Money Tripping, where I did a 48-state drive in six months, and I covered, like, political and economic culture throughout the U.S. So after that, um, which was January last year, I got off the road trip, um, I started doing freelance work. So now I write for Coindesk mainly and Payment Source still, um, and then other pubs here and there. I've done work with Digital Transactions. Um, I've done work with Quartz. Um, so, you know, just whoever wants to take a pitch. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> some people seem to be Bitcoin enthusiasts. Some like blockchain and, you know, aren't too fond of Bitcoin or just think it's a, a limited use case. Some are interested in other aspects of fintech. So where do you find yourself going? What, what attracts you most in this space? Yeah, so I think the politics of everything, so both in fintech and in Bitcoin and blockchain, especially Bitcoin and blockchain, there's tons of politics happening. So whether that be core development of the Bitcoin protocol and, you know, both sides of the block size debate, um, or sort of like these philosophical arguments about um, what Bitcoin means in terms of the development of money. Um, so those kind of things are what I'm most interested in. Um, and that's, I think, just um, being in the space for so long. So I, I've gotten to write, write about these companies and businesses that work in Bitcoin for quite a while. And so now, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in digging deeper into those things. Not, you know, what a company is doing, but, like, why it matters or if it's different at all. Bailey, um, you know, first thing, one of the first contentious issues I want to talk to you about is uh, block size. It seems like, I don't know why, people are just, raging back and forth online about this some people you know defend the block size to the death some people want it to get bigger what what are the issues behind why the block size could increase or not increase and how does it affect uh, the bitcoin ecosystem sure so i think a lot of it is about um, centralization versus decentralization so bitcoin started as a decentralized platform um, which means that it's censorship resistant to a certain extent, and people are really interested in keeping it that way, um, or at least a lot of people. So 
on the one hand, you have people who would like to increase the block size, um, which would make it more difficult because there's more information per block for miners to verify or authenticate those transactions. It would cost them more money and so less people would mine. Um, and that means that the resources would be centralized. So there's that group. But the reason that they want a bigger block size is because they see that people, um, both consumers and businesses, want to use Bitcoin, but in their minds, they see that the block size doesn't allow them to scale um, like they would like to. And so they are holding back their Bitcoin integrations because it will not be up to scale like they need it to be. Um, you know, so hundreds of transactions per second or something along the lines of like a Visa and MasterCard. Um, but then on the other side, you have the people who want to scale the blockchain, um, the Bitcoin blockchain, slowly. Um, and that's because they don't see these people sort of like knocking at the door. Um, and the idea is that they want to keep it decentralized. So they want to allow more miners to join the network in mine, um, to keep the power out of, you know, a group of miners' hands, a group of businesses' hands, even, you know, so few miners that, like, a government or business could collude with those miners. Um, well, so, well, quick question yeah, there. So, you know, it's kind of funny that that would be an argument because most mining, I've heard from many sources, is now being done in China. And... Uh, you know, so mining is definitely heavily concentrated there. I, I could see the Chinese government. I mean, they just this past week and a half, they just advised the exchanges, "Hey, you know, be be more careful with what you're doing." The exchanges reacted and got rid of margin trading. I don't see it to be any great leap if uh, you know the government of China comes in and says, "Hey, we own you now. We control your mines." So I mean, there's a, a huge centralization already. And then also, the uh, as the hash rate has gone up, again, another article, we're um, about two and a half exahashes. <laughs> it's, it's more than doubled in the past year. So talk about centralization and not as many people being able to mine. I mean, that's happening regardless of block size. Yeah, and I mean, I would agree with you for sure. Um, this is something I've talked about like quite a bit. It's just that... Um, when the block size argument first happened, I was sort of on the side of like, yes, let's raise the block size, um, because in my mind, I want it to be a payment mechanism for all consumers. So um, if there's more transactions in a block, it could be cheaper for consumers. And that was sort of the what people first touted Bitcoin as. It's like a cheaper, faster payment system that could help the people who are um, disenfranchised from the traditional payment system. And in my mind, that's a, that's a good thing to strive for. Um, but keeping the block size lower, um, you know, means that, sure, it's not so decentralized, but in my mind, that only becomes like a censorship-resistant mechanism for people who... Um, know how to use that system, have the money to use that system, and then, you know, it's it's maybe just a system to get around um, taxes or other government regulations for the rich, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I also think, too, I mean, you know, there's SegWit that's coming out, and that's kind of like um, a workaround to get more transactions going, but not increase the block size. <clears throat> and it's just kind of strange. The people, you know, Bitcoin is still a niche you know, it's not even nearly widespread. And in order for it to become widespread, I think it's going to have to move closer to more mainstream type of 
thinking and institutions. Yeah, it should preserve as much as, as it can of its great, you know, beliefs and tenets, you know, decentralization, immutability, etc. But if it's going to scale, I think it's going to have to, you know, quote-unquote, grow up and, um, you know, answer that. Because it, it's, you know, it's funny, if you want it for everybody, but yet you're holding it back to keep it for you and your buddies that are into tech and know about it, you really don't want it for everybody, you know, and everybody may not uh, do things with it that you like, but if you truly are for everybody, I think you have to do that. You have to be open to, to having it go in directions you may not want it to go. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's a good point. I think that point can be made on either side. So, like, the people who want the um, block size to scale rather quickly instead of just with these, like, smaller segwits um, or the smaller segwit update, um, you know, they, yeah, but the, in my mind, like, the Bitcoin protocol was given to us for free, and it's like, the core developers don't really owe us anything, so they don't owe us to scale quickly, and they don't really owe us for more people to use it, and, like, so I've moved sort of into a space where I kind of, I, I like, agree more with these smaller scale updates, because I don't want to put um, centralization pressure on on the miners because I think that the, really the only reason why this is such an interesting thing is because it's decentralized, which also means that it can be more efficient for, for, a, lot of, for a lot of things. But maybe that's okay. Um, so when I look into, and actually, so the Blockchain Bullies article that I wrote, these two, Chris DeRose and Josh Unseth, they make this point really well. Like, um, the, the Bitcoin blockchain is good for one thing, and that's the censorship resistance, which leads into regulatory arbitrage. So in the U.S. right now, regulatory arbitrage is used for buying drugs on the Bitcoin network, or for the most part, you could say. Um, you could either agree or disagree with drug usage, but in North Korea, for instance, it could be used for buying books, um, because books can be censored there, or in Venezuela, groceries. And like... That's the real power here. It's not to create a system that works exactly like the traditional financial system. Um, because, like, we don't need another Visa and MasterCard necessarily. Um, and not everybody needs Bitcoin. And that's fine. Um, does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You know, I, like, I, I just like to hear the perspectives. And I, it's, um, it's sad when I run into people that say, yeah, I, I don't want to comment on that because I'm afraid. I mean, what well, you know, it's crazy. This is not fascism. This is supposed to be, you know, an an open type thing where everybody contributes and everybody benefits. So the fact that there are, you know, block size bullies and censorship and all that in the the Bitcoin space is pretty ironic, I think. And yeah, I mean, it is really interesting. These people tout like a censorship like the benefits of censorship resistance. And then there's not only um, blatant censorship within some of the Reddit forums, um, but there's this like pseudo-censorship, which is just getting trolled and bullied to death until you are unwilling to speak. And like I have heard uh, like a lot of women in the space um, say stuff like this um, because they get bullied or sort of like talked at in like um, – like a more aggressive way so for instance like I was at a conference like several years ago and you know I had mentioned wanting to get like more women in the space and just a more diverse group of people thinking about this subject right. um, and then I had somebody comment and say well should we make pink flyers for everyone and you know like that's really annoying <laughs> and some people don't want to deal with that kind of annoying or that kind of like brashness and so it like 
removes people from the space who I think would normally be interested in it. Um, yeah. No, you don't have to like make pink flyers to get women involved, um, but you do have to like um, be like considerate that they don't, you know, they don't want to come to a meetup and like have somebody touch their leg or like these things that seem pretty obvious. Um, without making it like a double standard where women should get different treatment than men. Um, but the, Sorry, that was sort of a digression. But yes, okay. like, there is quite a bit of censorship in the space, both blatant and like kind of pseudo or like tangential censorship. Yeah, well, I mean, the point you brought up is valid. You know, we're here to talk about contentious issues within, you know, the crypto space. So, you know, if, if you and other women feel mistreated or excluded, I mean, it's valid. Um, another thing I was going to bring up is tech versus non-tech. You know, I've spoken to some companies that say in order for Bitcoin and, and cryptos to work, it has to be so simple the average consumer can understand it, and they don't care about the technicalities, and they don't care about, you know, blockchain and how it works and all that. But I I also perceive a um, some tech people seem to talk down to people that don't know anything about it, and I think that's also a disservice to crypto as well, because unless it is accessible and it makes sense to people and it's it's simple to understand, it just won't get widespread adoption. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, so, uh, hmm, I don't know. No, that's not true. So I get a lot of people, and this is because I think most people think writers are not technical, um, which generally is probably true. Um but, you know, I get a lot of people when I'm trying to figure out uh, especially what the benefit is of, of these private blockchains. So, um, you know, I ask a question and they give an answer and then I say, well, why, how? Like, tell me physically how that happens. And it's like their answer then is, well, that's going to get pretty technical. Um, to which usually my, my response is, I can be technical, please continue. Right. Um, but then it can also come back to this, well, you know, I can't really get into the weeds of it because that's our, that's our IP. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the space can be quite confusing to people, and there's a lot of misinformation that gets pushed. Um, but I do think that I'm, like, really supportive of the fact that people know what their technology is doing. So I agree with you that sometimes consumers, or I agree with the, the space in general, that consumers generally don't care maybe how things are working on the back end, except I think we're seeing a movement towards caring. So um, one of the best examples is when Facebook did that experiment where they were showing people negative news versus positive news and, and seeing how they reacted um, to other things, um, which you could see um, – it being something that you could react to politically. So, for instance, if they showed more negative content, they were, you know, a little people were a little more cynical. Mm. Um, positive content, they were more happy, um, so they would be more open-minded. Um, so, yeah, you you started seeing pushback there, like, oh, holy shit, what is Facebook actually doing? And we should know how these systems work. We should know how their algorithms work, so that we can understand what their sort of what their their mission is, even if it's not consciously their mission. Um, so I also see that sort of with Bitcoin and blockchain. Not a lot of people understand it. Not a lot of people are given the chance to understand it. But I think they will be interested in understanding it if, for instance, um, something happens politically where they need a censorship-resistant payment mechanism. So um, I wrote about this recently, how um, 
President-elect Donald Trump has mentioned that he is going to cut off remittances to Mexico um, to get them to build a wall. Now, I think he's come back on that. But um, with that in mind, uh, Mexican immigrants that are here might have might be incentivized to figure out how Bitcoin works at the core so they can send money back home. So um, consumers learn. Consumers are not stupid. They learn when they need to. Hmm. It's true. Like in Venezuela, I've, you know, I've heard that people are um, bringing in miners illegally you know, under, uh, in the black market, mining and then exchanging it for food so they can live. Sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, so people figure it out. Um, another debate I've noticed, which is kind of unusual, is that there are Bitcoin enthusiasts and then there are blockchain enthusiasts. And the blockchain people say, I don't want to talk about Bitcoin as if it's something bad. And I do see the two technologies diverging a bit, even though Bitcoin uses a blockchain. But um, I know Bitcoin had a difficult past with Silk Road. I think it's really overcome that. But I just kind of find it funny that some people find Bitcoin t- distasteful. But blockchain, oh, that's great, and we could use it for all these other things. So what what have you encountered uh, there? Yeah, okay. So this is a really hard topic. It's hard because blockchain does not have a definition, like doesn't have a set definition. Um, so... Um, Wayne Vaughn, who's with Tyrion, who helps enterprises um, peg their information to the Bitcoin blockchain, he has said blockchain is anything that shares some characteristic with the Bitcoin blockchain, which leaves it open, you know, to various definitions. And I think he's right in terms of that's how the industry sees it. So what is a blockchain? Does it mean that you have to have blocks of transactions that are chained together? Does it mean that you have to have proof of work, which Bitcoin does? or another proof algorithm? Um, Does it mean that you have to use digital signature cryptography? Um, All of these things are like open to discussion and some people think one way and some people think the other. Um, So in terms of like sort of the contention between the Bitcoin and blockchain space, in the Bitcoin space, they are um, quite aggressive about not seeing a use case for supposed blockchain, um, private blockchains, um, because those blockchains are not using a proof-of-work system because the proof-of-work system is quite expensive. So they sometimes will use a different proof algorithm. Um, Other times, it's unclear if they are even using any of those. Um, So on the Bitcoin side, it's like you're saying that you have a blockchain even though it looks nothing like a Bitcoin blockchain or any other type of blockchain because that will get you the funding and the attention. Mm. Um, and then on the blockchain side, I think you're right. Like the blockchain people wanted to kind of distance themselves from Bitcoin for its like uses at the beginning um, for nefarious purposes. Um, so Silk Road and you know anything else of that nature. Um, although you know, I think blockchain technology. So if you if you use like a very broad definition, could be interesting in the fact that. You know, most of them do use digital signature cryptography, so they're upping the security. Um, And if they could get a group of, um, so take the financial services um, sector, for instance, if you could get a group of banks to collaborate um, on fraud mitigation or transactions, you would see a faster, probably less costly payment mechanism. And for fraud, like if one bank could tell the other bank that there was this fraudster that came in by the name of John Smith, you should watch out for him. Um, That would 
would be very helpful. But they don't typically share that kind of stuff. Like some banks have started consortiums with fraud mitigation. But like the idea is that they're competitors. And so they don't really care if bank B gets hit by John Smith and loses money. They just care that they don't. Um, Mm. So that's sort of the contention with like blockchain, meaning like private blockchain or permission blockchain. And then, yes, the blockchain space sort of is like, well, we got to stay away from Bitcoin because public blockchains are, are quite inefficient for some things like decentralization is a, is a difficult thing um, to manage um, banks don't want just anybody mining their transactions they don't want Chinese miners mining their transactions um, and they don't want people to see all the transactions that they do um, hmm. So yeah, I mean, there's there's just a lot of issues here where I think that the private blockchain space has yet to show itself, has yet to show that it does have a use case. Um, so people continue to become more and more skeptical. Okay. <laughs> and then you have the different uh, cryptocurrencies themselves. So some people love Bitcoin, some people love, you know, well, it's not really a cryptocurrency, but Ethereum, some people love Dash, Litecoin, Doge, I mean, there's probably a thousand different cryptos um some people develop applications only for bitcoin some are in love with ethereum you know what have you seen around that where there's this uh oh my crypto is better than your crypto yeah um um, like i really feel like a lot of the cryptocurrency sort of wars if you will kind of ended um you know when Maybe a couple years ago, there was like just this rash of like new cryptocurrencies being created. Um, so yeah, you're right. There's probably at least a thousand. Um, now I think people are, you know, and I think a lot of that was for like pump and dump reasons. So hey, my cryptocurrency does this and this. You'd have a bunch of people join, the price would rise. The people who created it held quite a bit of stake in that coin and then cashed out. Mm. Um, and you saw that a lot. So people tend to be quite skeptical of new cryptocurrencies. Although, you know, um, there's like limited resources for people outside of this space to figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad. Um, so for instance, on my money tripping journey in Texas, I had uh, this guy at a coffee shop, got on the phone and started talking about one coin, which is like a known scam. Mm. And so like I, after he got off the phone, I was like, oh, tell me about what you're doing. And, you know, he's talking about how, well, if I get this person to join, then I get more money. I mean, it's like a Ponzi scheme. Right. In and of itself, or a pyramid scheme. So it's, you know, and they're really excited about it because they've just come off, they've come off seeing how people made tons of money in Bitcoin with Bitcoin's rise. And so they're looking for, like, the next big thing to make easy money. Um and so these scams are not only hard, there's not really a huge educational base around what are scams and what are like um, good alternative cryptocurrencies. Um, but then you also have people that might not even listen because they're so excited to just make a bunch of money. Mm. Um, and so they're sort of blinded by this, this um, easy money thing. So, but I haven't seen like the cryptocurrency wars as much as I used to. I mean, Ethereum is a separate thing. I think there's, you know, contention um, between Bitcoiners and, and people who like Ethereum. Um, but they they seem to be different things to me, ultimately. Okay. Any other um, political issues? I've been telling you the issues I think I see, but what about you? You probably have a lot more um, overview than I do. What do you see as now the 
the big hot button issues? Yeah, um, I think you touched on most of the hot button issues. I mean, um, you know, this is not hot button by any means, but this is something I think about quite a bit. But like, what does Bitcoin do when you think about moves towards um, state run or enterprise run um, moves towards a cashless society? Mm. Um, so, you know, does Bitcoin act as an alternative there for, um, for like an anti-state play or not really even anti-state play, but just like, you know, um, I think people get worried that a cashless society will not only be like un- insecure, um, but also, uh, there's a great opportunity for surveillance, both both state and enterprise-wise. And so does Bitcoin act as an alternative there if we keep moving towards cashlessness? Um, And then, like, in terms of... um, It's not something that I could really talk fully about because I haven't, like, come up with a great thesis, although I've thought a lot about... So there's a limit on Bitcoin, and is, is having a limit on the amount of currency that will ever be issued... Um, a positive. So, for instance, like, a lot of Bitcoiners will say that, like, the printing, the excessive printing of money and the debt that states have gotten um, its people into is bad. Um, And, like, so, let me see. Sorry, I'm not being super coherent. This is something that I've, like, tried to been thinking about. Um, Well, I can, I can, um, I can tell you one thing. Um, you know, a thought occurred, are we teaching governments on how to use blockchain technology against us if they go cashless and offer their own, you know, one person called it FedCoin in the U.S. as an example. You know, they could see every transaction could be on a, on a blockchain that the government has a backdoor to and can make changes to, but then there's no cash and really nowhere to hide, and every transaction is, uh, is in their view. So, you know, you wonder, will they take this technology and subvert it for their own use and, uh, you know, they were in trouble? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. And that's an excellent point, not just not just with Bitcoin and blockchain, but just the move to a cashless society, whether that be bank digital money or, or you know, debt, uh, credit cards um, that, you know, are just moving data on a ledger. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I mean, with negative interest rates, and capital controls, you know, governments not only can control money and corral it, they could, you know, extract whatever they want out of it with, you know, with some of these things. So it's worrisome. Yeah, and I mean, I tend to not be um, quite as fearful of of the the government, like Big Brother, as probably many of the Bitcoin, and maybe even blockchainers are, to be honest. not to be as skeptical of their motives, um, but definitely skeptical of, like, the motives of private corporations. Um, but that's, like, me being a liberal, <laughs> so, which, like, many people in this space are not. But I tend to think that, like, Facebook and, and um, private corporations, like, not that they're nefarious, but they're trying to extract and exploit us to a certain extent. They want to take our data and they want to sell it off to the highest bidder so that we get annoyed that we have to get ads all of the time. Mm. And, you know, not specifically nefarious, but definitely annoying. And in my mind, um, 
although the government has shown us time and time again that they, you know, sometimes do not play by the rules, um, but in my mind, there's there's not only like a want to keep its citizens safe, um, but there's like the government is like strapped for people, um, generally. So I have several friends at the Federal Reserve, and you know, I talk to them at at these about these issues. Um, and about surveillance, and they're like, we can only do so much. Like, I have three people on my team, and there's only so much I care to look into or that I have time to look into. And so I tend to think that it's less nerve-wracking that the government, who is highly, um, you know, underemployed, uh, is, like, scarier than, like, a tech company who has, like, tens of thousands and everybody wants to work for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. Yeah, okay. Yeah, a company like Facebook, you know, let's say, I don't know, but let's say it has, or Apple, you know, it has 60-some-odd billion in cash, supposedly, and it has many, many people working for it, and it's a profit motive, and that's accepted, that's okay, and it's probably argu- arguably better run than the government, who's running at a horrible deficit, would have much more resources to spy and try to control people than the government. Sure. Well, and you could even come back to this Facebook um, Facebook example that I brought up, like sort of swaying political decisions. Um, so what happens, like I, I don't think Facebook is doing this now, and maybe Facebook will never do this, but what happens when you get a corporation or a social media platform like Facebook that has incentive to sway a political election in their favor? Um, so... You know, I don't know what that would be, whether that would be they would sway it to Democrats or the Republicans, but, you know, the, what if they did that? Because there's a profit motive behind it, because for whatever reason, the Democrats say they want to censor this social media platform, or the Republicans say they want to censor this social media platform, and then they have an incentive, a profit incentive, to sway an election, and that's what, like, becomes a bit terrifying to me. Mm. Although, I mean, governments have done this too, right? tried to sway elections. The U.S. government has done this plenty of times yeah. in other countries. So, I mean... Um, All right, well, let, um, tell me a bit more about your trip. You know, what did you learn as you went through the, you know, the 48 states and, uh, I guess you didn't hit all 50, but <laughs> what did you learn as, yeah. you, as you went around? What kind of things surprised you or were interesting or... Yeah, so, um, I sort of started the money tripping journey, like... I had just come back from London, from six months in London, and there's a lot of talk in London about, like, the history of money um, and how that narrative has um, sort of been co-opted by um, um, sort of the, like, free market thinking of bartering, creating a money system, and I think that um, that is not set in stone that that is the history of money. Um, so. A lot of talks about that, um, a lot of sort of in-depth thinking and like philosophical thinking about what that means, that the narrative has been co-opted, and that um, that might not be the, his- the actual history of money. So I started money tripping with the idea that I would try to get to the bottom of that, um, and that I would do go about it talking to people from every state about what they thought about money, I guess. Mm. Um, so, and what I found, like, pretty shortly after I left was that those questions are not, like, on the radar of most people, Um, and especially here in the U.S., 
Um, I tend to think the U.S. is not quite as philosophical as um, many European countries, and so maybe that's why. Um, but this is just not on the radar. So the the um, the angle sort of shifted to like, okay, well, what do people think about money, whether it's like the history of money or not? Um, how do they interact with it? What do they feel about it? Um, and that got political very quickly. Um, so when you talk about money, people start talking about politics like almost immediately, hmm. um, which was great because um, we had sort of the, the what I would call the clown show of the Republican um, candidates running um, for president. And so like actually writing about politics at that time was very good. I had like a plethora of things to write about. Okay. Um, and then also on the Democratic side, um, you had like a very contentious run for both Hillary um, against Bernie. Um, so yeah, it was great. But um, yeah, I think sort of the main um, the main thing or sort of the theme because I'm currently working on the book for this. So like putting all of these okay. 48 states into a book, um, which I kept a blog called MoneyTripping.com. But um, so like making that into a cohesive narrative and like what I've found is that it's like a crisis of greatness like America is struggling with a crisis of greatness so like we think everything we do is so wonderful <laughs> and so we are unable to see like or even dig deep enough to find what's faulty with some of that um, some of that thinking and that's sort of how money is seen as well so like it's interesting like how much wants money and how like rich of a nation we are and like how um, you know greedy sort of has negative connotations but um, we have this idea that we can't share our money with others um, but then th those same people will say like oh well money is the root of all evil and so like there's this weird like crisis that like everything we think is great and we can't see the hypocrisy between some of it okay. yeah so that's maybe like a little bit off topic to the Bitcoin blockchain thing. But like Bitcoin and blockchain did come in in several states. Um, oh, anything interesting? How? Were you surprised how much or how little people knew about it? What did you see? So um, surprised how little for sure. Um, because I have spent, you know, several years in researching this topic and like only talking to people who know about this topic. I you know, was in an echo chamber. And so in my mind, like, everybody was talking about Bitcoin. <laughs> everybody was talking about blockchain. And, you know, I got on the road, and then, like, nobody had any idea about it. Right. And so the people who knew about Bitcoin, um, everyone I found that knew about Bitcoin either knew about it because of Silk Road or was selling drugs for Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, and some of them were not illegal. So I met this guy in South Carolina who um, I had a Bitcoin bumper sticker and he was like, oh, you're interested in Bitcoin. I'm like, yeah, how do you know about it? And he was selling um, Kratom, which is a synthetic, or they might not want me to call it synthetic, but it's like, um, it's a synthetic opiate. I'll call it synthetic, whatever. It's a synthetic opiate. So um, similar effects to, um, you could use it to get off heroin, for instance. Right. Um, and it was currently not illegal in South Carolina, but there have been pushes recently for states to make that uh, an illegal substance. So definitely people who knew about it were like working in gray areas. Okay. So it's, a, it's still a very fringe thing. And it's funny just because you or I think about it all the time or know about it doesn't mean anyone else does. So it's kind of funny. Right. And this... 
so this also like parallels like the crisis of greatness. Like it's like this industry, this Bitcoin and blockchain industry thinks they are like so cool, and like there's conferences and everybody is talking about it. But then when you get to like the actual people, like not people in Silicon Valley, not people who are entrepreneurs, but like people who are you know. Um, farmers or baristas and yada 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 just normal human beings like they do not care about your Bitcoin blockchain debate they don't <laughs> it means nothing to them so right. it was just it's kind of funny because you know even I was like oh I'm on like the cutting edge of something going to all these conferences and getting to speak and then you know it's like I kind of thought myself like high and mighty and really I wasn't well I found that um this is a little bit of a side discussion, but I found that at any one time, what's interesting is there's all these worlds going on around you. You know, like tonight, in whatever city, there's people ballroom dancing, there's people talking about Bitcoin, there's people like growing orchids, there's book clubs. It's it's just amazing. There's all these worlds that people don't know about until they learn about them, and each world right. assumes everyone knows about it, but they don't. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, hmm. And that's like super fascinating and wonderful, and I'm glad that happens. <laughs> okay. Yeah. One one last question. Um, I guess it's kind of funny. How about uh, Satoshi Nakamoto? You know, you've been in the space a while. Have you seen interest in finding out who it is decline or increase, or is it just kind of like become? Has he become like Santa Claus and everyone's okay with it? <laughs> Yeah, um, I definitely have seen it decrease. I, I think there will always be a want to figure out who Satoshi Nakamoto is, um, if it's a he or she or a group of people. Um, but, oh gosh, when was that Newsweek story? I guess a couple years ago even. Um, you know, it was like every other day somebody was coming out saying they knew who, some publication was coming out saying they knew who Satoshi Nakamoto was. And no, that was time, not Newsweek. But, you know, and then the next day um, another publication would be like, here's why it's not that person. And then, you know, they come out and say, we think it's this person. And then another publication would say, no, it's, you know, it can't be this person because of this. And I think that's dropped off quite a bit. Um, and to be honest, I don't think about it a whole lot. Like, of course, as a journalist, there's like this, you know, weird, um, uh, fantasy to like break that story. Mm -hmm. Like the, the biggest story in Bitcoin, you know, is like finding right. out who Satoshi Nakamoto is or like sort of in my mind. Um, and how like it would be so interesting to talk to him because there's so many competing narratives of why Bitcoin was created and what it's supposed to be used for um, then and now. Um, but like I just, I, you know, as much as that fantasy like circles around in my brain, I don't put a lot of thought to it. Like I don't read, um, you know, this is who Satoshi Nakamoto is stories anymore. Right. Um, and I think that's both good and bad so like there's the mythos around bitcoin and it's you know pseudonymous creator um i think uh has something to do with um something to do with this idea of like um being a, a pseudonymous bully online um i mean the internet itself breeds this kind of activity but um in bitcoin specifically um there's sort of this subculture um, that's surrounding this mythos that, like, you can say whatever you want and be masked um, mm. because our creator was masked, you know? Like, he's become, like, this deity, and so, like, um, 
and I think that can be both good, um, that there's this mythos of, like, who really cares who Satoshi is, but also that can be bad because, um, well, I care because if he's, um, um, if he's, uh, hmm, who do I want to give an example? If he's a bad person, um, we need to think about what he was thinking about when he created this. So it's the same sort of, like, bullying, um, uh, like, well, what does it matter who I am? My ideas are solid. Sure, um, but that could also be said about Donald Trump or some of these other characters who say, like, really offensive things that makes um, they are they are people in power who have a say, who give people that are under them an example uh, of how to act. And so, you know, to a certain extent, I want to know because I want to know that Satoshi Nakamoto is not a child molester or something of that nature. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I just I was just curious to see if you know if you know anyone in the journalistic world that's still trying to break the story or researching it, or if it's you know like you said it's died down. So it's just. You know, it pops up every now and then. I'm curious about it. Yeah, I think I think it's died down. I don't know anybody currently following that. Although I'm sure, like a lot of journalists in the space, sort of have like this wonderful fantasy to meet him, okay. or her, <laughs> or the group, <laughs> whatever it might be. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, well, fair enough. I think I've uh, you know asked you quite a lot of uh, difficult issues, and I'm I'm glad we had this talk because I think it's rare right now and. Um, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain environment, and it's necessary. So I'm looking forward to to putting this out there and seeing how uh, people go crazy and react to it. So. Yeah, I'm sure they will. It's, <laughs> it's funny because, like, most of my articles, I became, like, sort of the skeptic, both of Bitcoin and blockchain, um, at least on Coindesk. And so it's like I've just gotten over looking at comments on my articles anymore mm. <laughs> um, because good idea you know you can write like this great story or what you think is like a unbiased like seeing both sides story and somebody will just comment like you are an imbecile right and i'm like well that was not helpful for me to look at yeah <laughs> so, well fair enough all right yeah. well, well bailey I, I appreciate uh your time and it's a very interesting talk and uh we're looking forward to your book and what's it going to be called when it comes out yeah, I think it's going to be called Money Tripping. It'll have a subhead that I haven't thought of yet. Um, I'm getting close, but yeah, I think okay. i got to keep the Money Tripping brand. Very good. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.